Welcome to the Phase World Podcast, engaging conversations that cross the boundaries between business, art, and the digital world. Right after the earthquake, I think we were all in a state of shock. Was the government ready for it? No. We are trying to accelerate women entrepreneurship in Nepal. I would say it's a movement. It's not just a campaign, you know. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Face World podcast. This is your host, Fei Wu. Today, I want to welcome Cheering Doma Sherpa to Face World. She is a communications and program coordinator at Daiwa in Nepal. I'm going to do my best. Daiwa, D A A Y I T W A, translates as self responsibility in English. This organization envisions a thriving Nepal where All citizens embrace their responsibilities to collectively transform societal challenges into innovative opportunities. Cheering and I met at Freiburg Academy in Freiburg, Maine. She was just 15 years old. Unlike the rest of the international students, myself included, who had known at least a few other students from the same country, Cheering was there by herself. She was the only one from Nepal. She has several jobs on campus. She was a straight A student. Many of his friends assumed that she would be at Wall Street in no time, making big money and living an extravagant life. She deserves it. But we were all wrong. It was Cheering's dream to serve the community, especially people who are underprivileged and are in desperate need of help and support. She worked for several organizations, including Equal Access Nepal and the United Nations. A few years ago, Cheering moved back to her homeland, Nepal. In 2014, Cheering became a fellow at Daiwa. And in 2016, she began focusing on a program called Women's Rural Acceleration Enterprise Project. You probably guessed it, this particular program did not exist until recently. After Cheering and her team discovered that out of 60 applicants who applied to the regular REAP program, only seven of them. Were women. One woman became one of the five finalists. And she said in the video, Now it's not just my turn, but 500 other women in Popa, Nepal, where the WREAP was launched. With the support of grants and donations today at WREAP, many more female entrepreneurs can participate in leadership and technical training, networking, and facilitation of investment. This episode isn't fueled by call to actions for your donations. Instead, we hope to tell a story how a small group of young people can truly make a lasting impact. Seth Godin often uses the phrase edges. Great companies and programs are built around the edges. He says, build something that people will look for, something that people will talk about, something we would miss if it were gone. WREAP hasn't reached tens of thousands of women in Nepal, but I'm sure it will, just a matter of time and determination by people like Cheering. Starting with just a few hundred women in 2016, I look forward to seeing many more lives that will be changed by this program. 
I have also included videos of the WREAP program on the blog post where you can hear the stories told by those talented and strong women. Simply visit phaseworld.com and you'll be able to learn more about Cheering and the program she is supporting. Without further ado, please welcome Cheering Doma Sherpa to the Phase World podcast. So hi, Cheering, and thank you so much for joining me on Face World. How are you doing today? I am doing wonderful. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing great. I am so thrilled to be chatting with you because to let my audience know, I have known you for as long as I've been in this country. I have now officially known you for 16 years. That's a long time for both of our lives. <laughs> yes, it is. It is. It's long. So I remember, you know, when I first met you and I have this still very clear vision and recollection of you as this, you know, young, hardworking, smart Asian woman. I knew you were kind of smart. You're smarter than the rest of us. And you worked hard and, you know, you're the only student from Nepal at the time in our entire school, Freiburg Academy. But What's interesting is part of me always thought that because you're hardworking, you're smart, and you have such a great opportunity and infinite trajectory to go work uh, on Wall Street and make your first million dollars with, you know, very little effort for you, and go work at you know a corporate company in in the in the U.S. and claim your fame, be on the Time Magazine. I had all those thoughts for you, but instead. You know, year after, you know, each year, I feel like we get together and I was surprised to find that you ended up working at the United Nations. You were helping out volunteering at when earthquake happened and you're now very involved in an NGO helping out women in Nepal. What happened? Why did you decide to do all these things? I would like to begin with like how I was brought up. I think that's really what uh, drove me to where I am today. Um, I remember like when my father dropped me at Freiburg Academy, that was in 1999 and I was only 15 years old. And I remember, you know, in between that emotional uh, journey where he was dropping me off at the boarding school where we attended, I remember him saying like, there's so many young people leaving the country and uh, very few return. And he had always said, you know, what uh, if everybody's leaving the country, what remains is the traditional folks that's going to continue running the country with no innovative ideas. Just, you know, they're very happy with what they have going on, but there are no challenges. So the outcomes will always be the same thing. And I wanted to change the mindset of people, too, because when I returned in 2009, I think uh, there were not many as many returnees. I just uh, wanted to kind of look into the possibilities of what I can do in Nepal. I didn't know exactly what, uh, but I knew I needed to give it a chance because I've always known myself as being a risk taker and uh, I felt that uh, being 
the first to have any kind of education, at least at the master's level. I had somewhat confident that, you know, I would do good in Nepal. I would get a job um, and so forth. But um, that was wrong of me to, you know, think that way because it was very challenging for me for the first year and a half. I couldn't even get a job and um, I, I realized that it's become very competitive and in many ways uh, um, unfair as well uh, because I felt I had the qualities and the potential. But, you know, as they say, um, I mean, it's not about what you know, but it's about who you know. So that's when I started building networks uh, within my close community uh, because remember I was away for like a decade and so who, all the friends that I left behind in 2000 um, sorry in 1999 you know a lot of friends had already gone abroad or you know be, they were married or something like that but so I had to kind of build my own social, social network and meet people and kind of you know maintain the relationship and attend a lot of social functions and thereby I was able to kind of hold my place um, in an organization where I was overlooking the outreach of the projects that they were holding that mainly focused on uh, communications. Um, um, so that was a wonderful experience. I was there for two and a half years. Um, I got to learn a lot about media and um the history of it and also about going into uh, rural parts of Nepal and meeting the locals, hearing out their stories and um, executing it to the world to know um, that there is a life uh, beyond the borders. Wow. Um, so this was the opportunity called, is, is this equal access in Nepal? Correct. Oh, correct. Wow. May I ask, you know, was it through a friend that you met at the time? Did you apply through the traditional channel? How did you obtain that offer? At um, I saw the vacancy announcement on one of the national daily newspaper in Nepal. And um, I remember the country director at the time, he asked me um, questions regarding finance. And I remember being very blunt and I was uh, I didn't even have a second thought about uh, how to say properly. And um, my answer was that, you know, I lived in the state for a decade and I lived on my own and um, I, I scraped through things to survive. And I think I did pretty well. And that was my answer. How did you could you take us back to when you were 15, 16 living in uh, at Freiburg Academy by yourself. And how did you plan for your personal finance back then in order to survive for years on your own? Oh, that was such a challenging period. And I was, like you said, only 15 years old. Um, it's, I think it took a lot of sacrifice that I'm still paying off. <laughs> Such as? <laughs> I mean, uh, I get this reminder from my parents, you know, how much loan they had to take um, to send me school, you know, and uh, that still hasn't been paid. But, you know, the point of the matter is it was so important for my parents to 
give me the opportunity to have an advanced uh, degree as possible. Uh, if I remember correctly, you have a brother as well? I do. I have two brothers. Oh, two brothers. Younger brothers. And you... Yes. You know, you're the oldest in the family, and I'm not sure if it's, is it unusual or untraditional to kind of send the oldest daughter at such a young age to the U.S., taking up a loan instead of saying, have you settled down? Have you take care of your brothers? My father, you know, to this, to this day, he always uh, talks about, you know, woman empowerment. Um, he says, you know, that girls have equal rights to have um, education as much as the boys. They they gave me that opportunity. Um, and it was not, you know, like I wasn't treated extra than my brothers. We were all treated equally. Mm-hmm. And what became what came out of it is slightly different because I think we all have a different ways of learning and contributing. Um, and, um, my brothers, uh, I mean, they're doing well in their own ways. Uh, my youngest one, he is in British army. Wow. So he is currently based in the United Kingdom. And my brother who also went to Freiburg Academy, uh, he, uh, is now back in Nepal as well. So we are actually setting an example that, you know, you can go anywhere in the world for education and advanced knowledge. But what is the most valuable thing is what do you give back to the community and how do you help the community grow along with you at the same time? Um, in terms of living in Nepal, we're kind of uh, reliving and the, you know, migrating back to your homeland. What does it feel? What are some of the uh, a few top reasons? Or uh, it, does it does it come easily? Is, is there any part of uh, integration back to Nepal other than seeking your first job, which was challenging? Are there any day to day lifestyle changes that you had to consider and adapt? Oh, yes. (laughs) I mean, I had completely a reverse cultural shock and it was very hard to make people understand what I was going through because here I left uh, at the age of 15, which is a very prime age. And uh, the part about the struggle adjusting in the States was itself a difficult journey but then I was just doing well and I was independent and you know I had my own apartment I was managing the finances you know from fooding to lodging to all of that you know entertainment but then when I moved back here and uh, as you probably know uh, you know most uh, South Asian countries there is this high practice of living with your family mm. until whenever. <laughs> <laughs> so even, you know, guys are judged in the West, you know, why is he still living with his parents? But that's very common um, in Nepal, like many uh, Asian countries. Um, and so here I, ha- I, of course, I have to live with my parents um, that also meant that I have to get home on time. Um, I had to report where I was. 
who I was with and <laughs> when was I going to get back? Uh, the door's going to be locked. How are you going to get in? So there's this whole guilt trip. Oh, this will <laughs> that kill me. And asked to open the gate. And, you know, the security wise, you know, it's not it's not like um, I don't want to name a country, but it's not a war zone or anything like that. But here we take security very seriously just as a prevention measure, mm-hmm. preventive measure. Understand. Uh, so, you know, you know, girls, if they're out late and you, know, you just make an assumption that she's a bad girl, you know, mm-hmm. um, if you're home early and you're making meals and, you know, you're preparing tea for your parents, that's the definition of a good girl. Were you good? Were you considered good or bad or a mix of both or too career driven? What category did you fall into? I tried to balance uh, between, you know, being a career oriented woman and traditional at the same time. But again, um, you can never make your parents happy enough. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I completely echo that. It's funny that you brought it up because of, uh, I'm not sure you have seen the most recent SK2 video where uh, the the commercial itself talks about leftover women, which is this term that are uh, is commonly referenced and used in China. And finally, surfaced uh, up to, you know, why are we calling women left over between the ages 25 to 30 if she's not in the serious, if she's not married, simply not even in the serious relationship, you know, that you have to be either engaged or married to be qualified as uh, worthy. So that certainly started an international debate. But I can absolutely imagine as I've gone through that myself a little bit, you know, with, uh, with some of my family crisis. And as I mentioned, you know, my dad was very ill and, uh, he eventually passed away and there was a very tough, uh, number of years deciding basically how is my mom going to, uh, is she going to live on her own? Is she going to live with me? Uh, so I, absolutely understand that just the weight that you had to carry on your shoulders as a as a woman in this case as the uh the oldest child in the family where you know there's so many responsibility that came to bear and uh, you seem to be uh doing very well so for that i'm very proud of you and i wanted to <laughs> tell you that myself oh thank you Faye. <laughs> you're welcome during <laughs> we need that all the time really it's hard and that times that it feels impossible. And I know that this is something that we could talk about uh, almost, you know, to, to no end. But I think if we were to kind of, while we're on this chapter, to give some of the young women, uh, women in, in their mid to late 20s, possibly into their 30s, some advice on how to manage our expectation uh, related to our culture. Um, you know, before we move on to a different topic personally, and I want to hear your opinion as well, is that you really have to believe and in what you do and what your life is about. And you have to live a life for yourself, not a life that your parents want for you. Um, 
I completely agree <laughs> with what you just said, you know, uh, but, uh, you know, about the point of knowing what you want to do is sometime um, not the case or for everyone, because you are in this discovery phase, you know, um, and uh, it's you want to be empathetic. You don't want sympathy, you know. You you don't want sympathy uh, from your parents. You don't want sympathy from other, you know, people in your life. But you you want to. I don't know. The tradition part of me is I'm very empathetic. Mm-hmm. I'm very empathetic to the point where I feel like I'm overthinking it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think my advice would be to come to a middle ground. You know where you are not overdoing it mm-hmm. um and you come up with a formula within you know your family and uh, your professional life and your social life where you you know say that you know me coming home at eight o'clock should be considered normal mm-hmm. you know that you convince uh, your parents to make them believe that wherever you are, you are there for the good reason. You're not just there, mm-hmm. you know. The other day I was on a bike with my friend who's my, you know, who I've known since high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and my dad saw us on the bike and he was freaked out. He was like, you know, why are you with that guy? You know, I mean, it's just like I'm engaged in everything. So they were more worried about if uh, my fiance's family will see me on some other guy's bike. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. (laughs) I know. Yeah. I mean, it's like typical, you know, sounds crazy. Mm -hmm. So I had to make them believe, you know, this was solely because I needed to get somewhere and Mm -hmm. he was there and he offered me a ride and that was the quickest way to get to my destination Mm -hmm. and so forth, you know, so you have a lot of explaining to do at the, a lot. So I don't know. I don't know if it's only my case, but you know, I feel sometimes I'm not trusted. Mm-hmm. I'm not trusted, not because of me. I'm not trusted because of what other people thinks of me, which has nothing to do with me. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Uh, Asian parents are just on a much more pronounced uh, level, an exaggerated version, more melodramatic, and but I think universally, uh, there are certain uh, behaviors. Uh, that are kind of across the board. So um, we can certainly talk about this uh, forever, but uh, I do want (laughs) to explore some of, um, you know, basically in in recent years, I saw that you're volunteering a couple of times uh, during earthquakes. And then, you know, it's a very uh, saddened time in, in, in our lives. And I have personally witnessed uh, very traumatic um, earthquakes in in China as well. And, uh, you know, it just how it weighs on the nation and the country itself and your family and your friends. But could you tell me a little bit about how you were involved and why you were involved in the rescuing process? I would not say it's a rescue thing. Um, I don't know. Um, The word rescue to me links with, you know, like direct life saving. Um, That wasn't really my case. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so what happened was like uh, right after the earthquake, I think we were all in a state of shock. Um, I think many we had hints uh, along the way, you know, how like every 80 years, you know, with the turn of the history, uh, we the earthquake will revisit. Uh, we knew that. I think everybody knew that. But was the government uh, ready for it? No. The preparedness uh, from the government part was very lacking. But for me, you know, I, I experienced it for the, I think the first time, I mean, to that magnitude, uh, it was the first time. And I was on the fifth floor of the building um, and it just happened. And for me, I didn't see the point of running down the stairs because, you know, generally those are the weakest mm-hmm. um, portion uh, of the building, you know, like mm-hmm. if it falls down, you are in greater harm than any other room. And of course, you go next to the pillar and all that um, uh, preventive things. Uh, but, you know, what I was with my father and I we just literally like sat there like we didn't move an inch like um, it was a big room. So we felt that was safe to be in. Mm-hmm. We didn't like we just decided not to move out. But soon as it stopped, we just ran out of the building like a ghost was chasing us. Um, so after that period and with aftershocks on and off throughout the day, um, it's we were like completely paralyzed, like I think mentally completely paralyzed mm-hmm. and not sure exactly what to do. And my mother was not around. She had gone to a monastery Mm -hmm. uh, for some teaching and we couldn't get hold of her. Uh, Whereas my uh, brother, one of the brothers was up in the mountain, uh, very close to Mount Everest. Uh, We couldn't get hold of him. Um, And the youngest one who is in the United Kingdom, he sends me a message saying, you know, what's going on, you know, mm-hmm. and there was no network, nothing. Nobody knew what's going on. We were getting reports from people from abroad. Like they were saying, oh, you know, this, this got down and that got down and, you know, all these stories, but it was all indirect. You know, we never got to see it in firsthand. I was able to see your status update on Facebook uh, as along with many of the other uh, of our Facebook friends understanding that you're safe and you're not harmed. And but then shortly after that, I saw pictures where you were helping people out. Correct me if I'm wrong. (laughs) And uh, you're helping out in ways that you can, you know, not as part of the official uh, rescue team for you to help other people. How did you feel? It was amazing. It was amazing. So like after like, I think almost nearly a week, we were just, you know, in a little cocoon trying to figure out how are we going to do this, whether we should go back into the house, uh, you know, what do we need? And, you know, all the basic things that we always took for granted. Um, And again, you know, there was no network. So 
we didn't we didn't know for a long period of time what was going on and we had the radio uh, but you know that was not as accessible as well and but when we did get access to the internet and the phone and everything i was so shocked like i was completely shocked and even angry with myself that i did not act on and i did not help out people because i was just with my family and you know normally that's like your first uh state of mind is like you know you need to protect your family you need to be there for them uh but then we were doing fine i mean we were comparatively doing fine so i felt the need to do something and sure enough you know my friends who are equally like minded even you know greater minded people they contacted me and they're like let's go you know it doesn't matter like uh, whether we have the equipments or not it doesn't matter if we have you know funds for it or not let's just go and check out places and what's the actual story because you know news a lot of time is always exaggerated mm-hmm. so we wanted to see for ourselves what's going on and um by profession my friends um some are doctors and some are engineers and i'm into communication so we thought you know this is a great team you know we can go and give them medical support we can um consult them about how the houses should be framed like because now they were living in a temporary housing um so we the engineer friends they could make that kind of um professional advice and so we did we just went on bikes and went on to the areas that we heard that had the greater devastation so we did assessments uh, here and there um again you know this is this group of friends trying to do whatever we can Mm-hmm. to help out people those in need so we went to uh, like uh, five major i think five major um areas that were uh, hit the most in the nearby um area from Kathmandu mm-hmm. and uh, slowly enough like uh, my a friend who is a doctor he had networks with pharmacies so he got those um uh, over the counter drugs and basic you know um from bandaid to neosporin you know those are the most basic things but again um so he had the discounts and everything so we were able to purchase those and go out on the field and you know given an orientation on how to uh maintain sanitation and how to prevent themselves from other airborne disease because that during that time it was also rainy season and you know these people are all in open land and um you know there there's no proper toilet so on so th- my friend was able to give those kind of advice and so along the way we were just taking pictures and you know just posting it because we felt you know people should be inspired by what we are doing and we were not only the one surely but we just wanted to you know have a record of you know it it was it was a journey of friends but with a purpose um so slowly enough like a lot of friends got to uh, uh see that from our social Uh, media portals so they were willing to support us to not you know so they were sending us you know bucks here and there so we just gathered that and we 
uh, went out and got uh, basic needs, even more basic needs from like food, rice, you know, that's one of the staple dishes in Nepal, like many Asian countries. So we got rice and, you know, basic, basic, very basic thing that cannot go immediate ruin, but will support for the survival until they can figure out where to go. Moving on to your most recent endeavor. And first of all, I need to learn how to say it. Uh, it's D-A-A-Y-I-T-W-A. How do you pronounce it? Da-it, like T. Daitwa. Oh, da, like, okay, daitwa. I'm going to do my best. <laughs> <We're, we're laughs> but the English, it's a Nepali terminology. Mm-hmm. And uh, the direct translation of it is responsibility. Yeah, yeah. This is much easier to say. Uh, translate the responsibility. And this, there's a whole theme of helping other people try to be helpful and and volunteering and in this case you know i feel like this is a project which really inspired uh, me to kind of interview you for this podcast and that's why we uh, reconnected on this is that string of what i just mentioned plus and this most recent project w r e a uh, which i'm sure you can uh, help us understand uh, what this acronym means it's a is a project to help and support women in Nepal. Tell us a little bit about that. It's I would say it's a movement. It's not just a campaign, you know. Um we are trying to accelerate women entrepreneurship in Nepal, which we believe will be a important supporting factor to economic growth of Nepal. Um we as an organization we are working in four different sectors uh leadership entrepreneurship civic engagement and governance uh today i'll like focus more on the entrepreneurship uh whereby we whereby it is a accelerator program not an incubator program so we're looking for entrepreneurs who have started a venture who has started an enterprise um, in some form, you know, it's already established, not established in a sense like successful, but they, they have a dream. They, they want to accomplish something. Uh, so we target for people uh, as such, and we hold a district wise um, competition. And, you know, what reap has become is, um, is from those experiences that we uh, gathered since 2014, uh, where we focused on, since then we focused on three districts, uh, Palpa, Gulmi, and Ramechap. And what we do there is we hold a district-wise competition where the entrepreneurs will fill out an application uh, stating their enterprise and what it stands for them and how they want to grow and what they want to learn and how can we support them and so forth. So in each district, what we do is we screen those applications and we pick out the <clears throat> we pick out the top forty application uh, our top forty applicants and. Uh, 
after that selection, after the announcement of the top 40 selection, they are encouraged to advocate for themselves. You know, like how the U.S. president campaigns work, like they go to states and they share, they, they share their goals and they share their ideas and they try to get people on board and vote for them. Similarly, we use the same tactic whereby uh, they will gain votes through two mediums. One is text messages. We give a code for each uh, 40 entrepreneurs. And if people like them, if they are convinced uh, using those codes, they will send in their votes. Likewise, there is a global participation. We do a bio of each uh, entrepreneurs on Facebook and every like counts as a vote. So the combination of the text votes and um, the Facebook votes, we screen out the top 20 out of the pool of 40 entrepreneurs. I think it's very helpful. And uh, for my listeners, I will be posting some of these videos and links for people to really engage with the content because it was very helpful for me to watch the video and watch the women speak about their challenges, struggles, and excitement and what this opportunity brings for them. So... Yeah, please continue. It makes total sense. Yeah. All right. So based on those votes, we pick out the top 20. Um, Now we feel, you know, these are all becoming um, exercise of, you know, indirect, like we want to know them firsthand. So we, we create a pool of jury members who are experts in these fields, who are affiliated with the government, who are affiliated with the private sector, education, you know, academics. And we, we create that pool and we go on this journey of visiting those 20 entrepreneurs by the house. Like we will go to their houses, we will interview them, we will see what they are doing. We want to ensure that whatever, you know, uh, wherever they have come so far, we want to ensure that it's authentic. We want to ensure that we believe what they are up to. We believe, you know, you know, that it's genuine. And uh, so with these interviews, based on these interviews, we uh, pick out the top 10 out of, you know, through from that uh, screening for through the interviews, uh, which is a very rigorous process because these districts, you know, because it's a district level competition, some places are so remote that it takes you days to get there. And, you know, the interview process is always long. So it's a very dedicated process. And so the top 10s then will receive $250 each to support their businesses. Wow. So what does that mean? What does $250 mean to these women? What can they do with the money? can expand their businesses as simply as getting loans, uh, using it in installment to uh, say, for example, buy a goat for farming. You know, if they are into dairy products, they can, you know, buy a goat and help them survive or enhance their businesses for months um, along the way. And 
they can invest on land uh, so they can expand uh, their businesses in that manner as well as marketing and um, distance to travel there if they choose to they can also expand those avenues through the support of 250 dollars that's equivalent to 25000 rupees in nepal currency wow. and that's that's a large sum i mean people don't even make um, 25000 a month in average in Nepal. What is the average income of uh, a you know a Nepali family living in rural area, not not in city? I have met people who are making thousands of dollars per month in the rural parts of Nepal if they do it right. Thousands of U.S. dollars. Yeah. Uh, but what I'm saying is, like, if there are people who are making one thousand dollar per month. What is that difference with people who are not making as much, you know? So I feel like in terms of the entrepreneurship angle, mm -hmm. the people who are making that large sum is uh, has access to the market. They're able to sell their produces and they're doing everything on their own. Uh, but then there are people who are just focused on producing and then somebody else is making profit out of it. You know, this is again, I, this is more like entrepreneurship angle, but there are other, you know, sectors who might be making equally more money. But then if you look at the rate of um, uh, Nepalese that are going abroad, like Gulf countries for labor job is so high. Mm -hmm. Like when you go to remote part of Nepal, you don't see any young men. Even women nowadays have left uh, their villages for greater opportunities. Mm. And I think what we Daito is trying to do is show you the possibilities that you can do something in your home country if you put an extra effort, if you are if you have that enabling environment. It based on the the donor people who are very involved in this project, who people have donated uh, that through generosity. dot com. Do you see who are these people? Are they local? Are they from Nepal? Are they from around the world? Um, at the moment, we have received funds from thirty seven people. Mm -hmm. And these 30, 37 people are mostly from our networks only mm -hmm. because we have um, strategized to kind of get those people who trust us, who believe in us, mm -hmm. and hopefully they can also spread the word for us. Mm -hmm. So those have been our focus so far. But in coming days, we are focusing on more locals. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, getting their support. And I don't mean it always on a monetary way, mm -hmm. but also, you know, being part of this journey with us and being an advocate for us. We are designing perks. Uh, I'm sure you know about perks and how that attracts um, potential donors to uh, support our campaign. Uh, PERC is way of uh, giving an incentive 
to uh, our potential donors, whereby they also get something out of their donation. So last night I was staying up designing these. Mm -hmm. So what we are trying to do is these uh, perks can be of products like uh, local products Mm. for example uh, in the district of Palpa uh, there is a fabric it's very popular and significant to Nepali culture called Dhaka and it's uh, made in Palpa and um, so we I was designing this perk whereby it says if you donate hundred dollars, you will get local products, Dhaka products from Palpa and delivered to you by X Y Z. So it's it's a great way of promoting local products, promoting the culture of Nepal, the art of uh, Nepal at the same time, and their contribution is also going uh, to the women of Nepal, particularly. So what? So I can imagine that's something not only it's attractive to local people, you know, in other parts of Nepal, where people won't be able to uh, ac- access to this material fabrics directly. But I can only imagine, and uh, outside of Nepal, you know, in North America and other parts of Asia, do you think that? You know, it's in a way that I, I I don't want. On one hand, I don't mean that by making a donation, you know, fifty hundred dollars isn't isn't uh is maybe significant on the personal level but you know you also have the balance that with shipping with running such program so do you think there do you think that there may be an opportunity to kind of extend that offer to people outside of nepal that perks is uh focused for more people in abroad and you're right the shipping is very tricky because if you end up spending more money than what you're getting Mm -hmm. uh, that is going to be a loss for the campaign so we are figuring out like ways of doing this like um i was just doing this research yesterday uh, that indiegogo has uh, partnered with this company amplifier which uh, works as a warehouse and uh, tries to helps uh, gives you like 10% discount on shipments but again i need to um, explore this more i have touched base with the company and hoping to hear back from them today and see how they functions because they had mixed messages like saying warehouse and designings and stuff like that so what we want is we have the products we you just wanted shift one other way is just doing it the old school way you know if we know of someone going to the states we'll just request them you know like a pro bono thing where they can you know take the material for us in uh, in um, wholesale and then they can you know help us uh, ship it from state to state versus from nepal to new york for example mm-hmm. um so those were some ways we were thinking, but also, you know, we will always do a calculation of how much, um, uh, what the product is worth, because we are also buying those products from these local entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. And we are also calculating the estimate shipping cost and then also measuring how much money can we make out of it that goes towards the campaign. Uh, for people to learn more about a 
W-R-E-A-P. If they like, they would like to get involved, if they want to learn more of the story, where can they find you and your organization? So uh, we have a Facebook page under the title D-A-A-Y-I-T-W-A. It's only been about 14 days now and we have already raised $3,000 and uh, there's long to go. If you go on Generosity by Indiegogo, the title is um, Women Rural Enterprise Project. Yeah. So those are the ways. And, you know, we have our organization website as well, which is D-A-A-Y-I-T-W-A.org. This is great. I'll include all the links um, on our post, as you know, that I do create a, a blog post to go along with the audio piece. So we will make sure that mm-hmm. people visit. But yeah, thank you so much, Sharing, for joining me on Face World and sharing your journey, your wisdom, and best of luck to you and your organization. I hope we continue this conversation. To listen to more episodes of the Face World podcast, please subscribe on iTunes or visit faceworld.com. That is F-E-I-S-W-O-R-L-D, where you can find show notes, links, other tools, and resources. You can also follow me on Twitter at Face World. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.